Our Old Testament uh, lesson comes out of the book of Isaiah in the ninth chapter, the first seven verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but the future will honor Galilee uh, of the Galileans by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. To those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you and as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, bar across their shoulders the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And we know this is true today because Jesus has come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh. 
Last night I, I got to go to my son's church in Chula Vista and they had a prayer and worship time and, and, and I expected to see all of the young families in the church and there were only three. And I kind of went, huh. And then there were the rest of us old timers that were there. And I want to tell you, the singing was amazing and the spirit showed up and God touched people's lives and it was a blessing. And I, I had to say, Randy, your stereotypes are wrong. It's when God wants to move on a congregation. Old or young, it doesn't matter, he'll move on. And so one of the things that I wanna to say to us is to be open, that when you come to church, pray that the spirit of the Lord would come upon us and we'd be open. Now, some of you say, oh, you know, that kind of music, uh, that contemporary stuff, you know, they repeat it eight or nine or 10 times. But remember, for Presbyterians, that's really helpful because we're God's frozen chosen and it takes a while for him to warm and get us heated up again. And so, uh, you know how long it takes to warm up a casserole? Uh, it takes a while. And uh, God's here with us right now. He's in this room. Open your heart to who he is and what he wants to do in your life. I read that the ideal Christian is one who is completely fearless, continually joyful, and constantly in trouble. Now, uh, most Christians, Christians could stand to, to be a little less fearful and a lot more joyful and in constant trouble. Now you may say, come on, Randy, you know you're a troublemaker. I, I've been that. I've, 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 I've tried not to encourage any of you to be troublemakers too, but I do see the troublemaker in you. It's one of my spiritual gifts, okay? <laughs> so I just call it out. I mean, I look innocent, don't I? <laughs> wow. All right. Well, just, you could have asked my mom, and uh, is Randy a troublemaker? And she would say of me many times that I was a little troublemaker. Not a lot like you, Steve, but a little troublemaker, okay? Takes one to know one, I'm telling you. Uh, we're there. Problem for most of us is that we, as being a Christian, we'd rather be liked than be rejected by stating what we know to be true. So many of the things that we can state here in this room, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the only way to salvation, Jesus is the light of our lives, uh, on and on and on, you can say here in church, but when you go someplace else, you get quiet. Now, I, I, I don't think Jesus wants all of us to be big rabble-rouser uh, evangelists. But what I think he wants us to do is to tell what we've experienced. That's all. All you have to do is tell people about what you've experienced. And they seem to accept that, especially people that know us. And so one of the things that I think we need to be is a radical Christian. And 
from where we are now to being a radical Christian, the only real step is tell people what we've experienced. And the rest of the world is going to look on you and think you're kind of radical, but you're not. You're just sharing what you know is true. Jesus was a radical and a most imposing personality. Not intimidating, not frightening, but imposing. He was formidable, uh, unafraid. He entered the temple to find people groping about for in spiritual darkness and thirsting for divine truth. They wanted to be touched by God. They wanted to see God. They wanted God to do some things in and through their nation. And Jesus, earlier than this passage that we're on right now, boldly stated, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That was chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. So here in our scripture today, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Chapter 8, verse 12. Do you need light in your life to help you figure out what you're supposed to do? Do you wander in darkness saying, well, I should do this or should I do this or I don't want to do that I, I, but do I really want it and you get confused scripture says that Jesus will be the light of your life will help you give you some parameters to be able to live your life by that will move you forward towards God and in God's path but you have to decide to walk in his light Jesus fearlessly spoke the truth without apology. And he joyously walked in the truth with his father. And therefore, he found himself in constant trouble for his uninhibited love of truth. So let me read to you our scripture for today. It's John chapter 8, starting at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. Did you hear that? I pass judgment on no one. That's what Jesus says. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that a, the testimony of two men is valid. I'm one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while uh, teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because 
his time had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and uh, what I have heard from him I tell the world. They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. God bless to us this word of his. Jesus understood better than, well, anyone that the price for speaking and living the truth because he is the light made flesh. Matthew recalled uh, a particularly shocking statement by Jesus. Jesus said, Don't, uh, uh, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, Matthew 10, 34. The purpose of the sword is to divide. Physically, it separates one part of a body from the rest of the body. Figuratively, the sword of truth is so sharp that it can slide between the imaginary bond of soul and spirit to lay bare the intentions of humankind. And socially, the sword separates groups into two categories. It attracts those who surrender, and it incites to violence those who will not. No room for compromise before the gleaming sword of truth. We either surrender or we fight it. Jesus brought a sword into the temple uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it wasn't a real sword. Some people surrendered. Others began a futile, exhausting, self-destructive fight against him. According to verse 20, this scene occurred in the treasury found in the court of women. Let me try to describe it for you. This was a large court in the temple. It's where the women could go. It had a colonnade on one side, uh, and that was a covered place where people could sit uh, in the shade and be in the temple. Uh, there were uh, a number of 13 great treasure chests there in that colonnade. Uh, they, they, they called them trumpets. They looked kind of like a trumpet. Uh, standing on, on the face or on the bell. And it went up to a smaller area where you put the coins in. Now, it's very interesting that the first two coins was for half shekels. Each person in Israel had to, every year, put a half shekel in one of the first two 
trumpets. It was their tax to help keep up the uh, temple. And uh, the second two trumpets were for offering for uh, the temple to buy pigeons. And uh, pigeons were used for rites of purification, so people bought those the most. The fifth trumpet was for wood, for the sacrifices. The sixth trumpet was for incense, to buy incense so they could keep the place going. The seventh was for upkeep of the golden vessels in the temple. And then if one had any money left, the remaining six trumpets were for love offerings, undesignated giving. Because of the trumpets, this part of the temple was very important and heavily trafficked. It was a perfect place for what the Lord, what Jesus wanted to do. He knew just the right moment for which to make this pronouncement. You see, in the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two great ceremonies. One was the pouring out of the water. We put that, you know about that. The other was called the illumination of the temple. It took place in the treasury area, which was the court of women. So the treasure chests were there, and, and the treasury was there. And the center of the treasury were four great torches. I talked about them before, 75 feet high. But I, I didn't really explain them. They were menorah, but they only had four arms, each one. And each bowl consisted, they could carry 10 gallons of oil. And so every night during the Feast of the Trumpets, uh, the tabernacle, the, the younger elders would carry the oil up, fill it up, and then they'd light it. And when all of these 16 lights were lit, it was like daylight on the temple floor. Uh, it was amazing. And then, and then throughout the rest of Jerusalem, there was light enough that you could walk down the darkest alley and it was lit enough that you could see and not trip over things. And, the, and so it gave light to this place, to the city of Jerusalem. It was a magnificent thing. People would come. Now, then, then what would happen was that the elders, the priests, uh, the, the Levites would be there and they would be the, they play lyres and lutes and cymbals and all kinds of instruments. And so they're playing, kind of like what was happening up here just a few minutes ago. But they played all night. And they sang and they danced and the elders and the priests would hold torches and dance all night. It was a party. Mardi Gras had nothing on the Jews in this every night for a week. Everybody came and partied and they watched and it was an amazing kind of a celebration of, of uh, the crops being brought in, harvest. And so, seven nights of this goes on, and Jesus is waiting. The last night, or the next morning, as they're about to put out the lights and the torches, they put them out, and all of the temple 
drops into darkness. And why, why did they do that? Well, they did that because they were still looking for the Messiah to come. And until he came, they couldn't put out, they had to put out the torches because it still was dark. And as soon as everything went dark, that's when Jesus stood up and said, I'm the light of the world. And it impacted the entire temple area. Jesus yelling at, at really the top of his voice that, that he was, and basically what he's saying there very clearly to the Jews, I'm God. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm, I'm the Messiah. It was an amazing experience um, and set the city uh, almost vibrating about what, who Jesus was. Now, it wasn't his time to be arrested, so they let him go. There he was in the temple, right on the other side of these uh, uh, treasury chests was where the Pharisees and the leaders of the temple were. And, and so it could have been easy for them just to send the guards right out and arrest Jesus who was standing there, but they didn't do it because it wasn't time yet. God was holding them back, stopping them from doing what, what they wanted to do. So what does all of this mean for us today? Jesus can take our inner darkness and carry us from despair to hope. Where are you today? What's really going on in your life? I mean honestly. Is there areas of darkness? Is there things that are happening that, that you're out of control, that you can't control, that you can't, you make a commitment and then you do the same thing over again and you just, you just can't. Are there things like that in your life? Jesus wants to be the light into your life to shine his light in later on Jesus says what you are the light of the world first he says he is and then he says you are so how does that work well it works very simply we're to reflect the light of Jesus how do you reflect the light of Jesus you get close to him you see how he lives you see how he interacts with other people. He sees how they, you treat, how he treats other people. And you begin to reflect his love and his light into other people's lives. How are you doing on that? That's what it means to be a disciple, to reflect the love and the light of Jesus to the world. Are you doing that? Or are you just living your life the way you want to live it and haven't given everything over to him. Spiritually, sometimes we uh, feel like we're doing fine until Jesus shines some light in us. His light upon us, uh, the light then lets us know what the truth is, that we see all of the flaws and the sin and the issues uh, that we need to have taken care of. We thought we were fine before, before we got saved, until Jesus shone his light upon us and until he showed us the truth that no, we too need to be rescued. 
Every time Jesus uses one of the I am statements, and that's where we are today, he emphatically is stating that he is Yahweh, that he is God. Jesus is the light of the world and uh, a consuming fire. Now that should stop us in our tracks right there because we're on holy ground. It riles up the Pharisees. They get upset. In chapter 8 alone, the Pharisees interrupt Jesus eight times because he makes a man, but not mad enough to go and take him out because it's not his time yet. They take issue with his outrageous statements and ask Jesus a pointed question. Are you greater than Father Abraham who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus pushes them back and talks about Abraham being glad to see his day finally come. And they don't know how to respond to that. So they return to return to Jesus' uh, sarcasm. You're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus then says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And scripture tells us they pick up stones to slay him. That's why I needed a couple of stones here, just in case. To slay him, but Jesus slips away in the crowd. Jesus is the light of the world. A light reveals, light enables us to see things that uh, were there all along, but because of the darkness, we could not see them. Darkness conceals the light, and the light reveals. Two, the light gives life. Light is necessary for life itself. It sets our biological clocks, triggers our brains, the sensation of color, comes from light and it supplies the energy for things to grow. John 1, 4, we read uh, this about Jesus. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Light, three, scatters darkness. In scripture, darkness is often a metaphor for sin and spiritual blindness and death, but light scatters it. Four, life gives warmth. Did you know that one small candle properly reflected will raise the temperature of an igloo from below freezing to 45 degrees. In the Bible, warmth is often equated with the comfort of God. Five, light provides guidance. We all know it's difficult to walk in darkness. If you've ever been up in the mountains, boy, you, you know that. I, I remember uh, as a teenager, uh, we did a backpacking trip with a Christian conference center and we backpacked. Lord, did we backpack. We climbed up high mountains and came down and one day we decided to stop and rest by a stream and, and uh, a guy and a girl uh, went hiking and then they started climbing on a boulder field, which is never a good thing. And the guy was ahead and he put his hand on a rock and it rolled down and landed on the girl's hip and broke her hip. Now we were two days out of uh, Yosemite, the floor of Yosemite. And so we had to, a couple of us had to hike down in the dark through the trail till we finally could come. Was it, it, it was all night and a lot of the next day until we found a, a, a forest ranger so that we could get them 
to call up a helicopter to pick her up and take her out. And, um, but we walked in the dark. Thankfully, there was a moon out, to, uh, at least a partial moon, and we could see somewhat of where we were going, but that was dangerous. It's hard to walk in the dark. You know, uh, I, this is an honest, true story. When I was a little guy, um, I would call out sometimes at night and say, Dad, I need a drink of water. Dad, can you get me a drink of water? Now, that, my dad was an amazing man, and he'd get up grumbling and mumbling all the way and would bring me a, in a glass of water, and then he'd turn and he'd walk out the door. The trouble was my door and my closet door were right next to each other. And every time he walked into the closet, and then he'd climb back out, and then he'd turn around, and he'd walk back into the closet three times. Finally, I said, it's okay, Dad, here, I'll come get you. I got him and took him to his bedroom and helped him. He was, couldn't see a thing. That was the last night I got anybody to pick me water uh, and bring it into my, uh, that was the end of that. But it's hard, you know, to see in the dark. But light scatters that dark. Boy, I once heard a Sunday school teacher say that uh, Jesus was the light of the world, and after class he went up to that teacher, and he said, if Jesus really is the light of the world, I wish he'd come and hang out in my house. It's awfully dark where I live. It says a lot. Sometimes it's pretty dark where you live. But Jesus wants to be the light. That's one of John's key ideas. The word light is used 24 times in John's gospel. In the beginning of the gospel, John uh, 1.9, we read, true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. Where do you need Jesus' light? Is there darkness in your home or with some of your friends? Jesus, the light of the world, wants to enter into those places. He tells us that we too are the light to this world. We need to reflect Jesus' light. A university professor um, challenged his students with the question, did God create everything that exists? And one student bravely raised his hand, oh fool that he was, and he said, yes, he did. And the professor said, God created everything? Yes, sir, he certainly did, replied the student. And the professor said this, if God created everything, then God created evil. And since evil exists, and according to the principle that our works define who we are, then we can assume that God is evil. The student became quiet, didn't have an answer. The prof professor uh, uh, turned very pleased with himself, and he boasted to the students that he had once again proven that the Christian faith is a myth. Then another student raised his hand and said, may I ask a question, professor? And of course, replied the professor. The student stood and asked the professor, does cold exist? What kind of a question is that? The professor said, of course it exists. Have you ever been cold? And the student snickered in the classroom. The young man replied, uh, in fact, sir, cold does not exist. According to the laws of physics, what we consider cold is really the absence of heat. Every body or object susceptible to the study when it has or transmits energy. And heat is what makes a body or a matter uh, have transmitting energy, absolute zero. 
460 degrees below Fahrenheit is a total absence of heat. And all the matter becomes inert at that temperature, incapable of reaction at that temperature. Cold does not exist. We have created this word to describe how we feel if we have no heat. Then the student continued, Professor, does darkness exist? And the professor responded, of course it does. And the student replied, once again, you're wrong, sir. Darkness does not uh, exist either. Darkness is in reality the absence of light. Light we can study, but not darkness. In fact, we can use Newton's uh, prism to break white light into many colors and study the various wavelengths of each of the color. But you cannot, you cannot measure darkness. A simple ray of light can break into a world of darkness and illuminate it. How can you know uh, how dark a certain space is? You measure the amount of light present. Isn't this correct? Darkness is a term used by a man to describe what happens when there is no light. Finally, this same young man said, Professor, does evil exist? Now, uncertain, the professor responded, of course, as I've already stated. We see it every day. It's the daily uh, example of man's inhumanity to man. It's the multiple of crime and violence everywhere in the world. These manifestations are nothing else but evil. And to this, the student replied, evil does not exist, sir, or at least it does not exist unto itself. Evil is simply the absence of God. Just like darkness and uh, cold, uh, a word that man has created is to describe the absence of God. God did not create evil. Evil is a result of what happens when man does not have God's love present in his heart. It's like the cold that comes when there is no heat or the darkness that comes when there is no light. And the professor sat down and the young student's name was Albert Einstein. See, darkness and light can't mix. Think about it. How do you mix darkness and light? If you bring light into the darkness, it's no longer dark. Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me ask you, do you have the light? I remember a time when my wife and I attended a conference uh, in San Diego. It was a music conference. A friend of ours was there and he was very ill, but he came to the conference anyway. And I watched my wife, Kathy, become a light to him. She understood his pain and his health issues because of what she had gone through. She could help him think of things to ask doctors and things to do to help rebuild his strength. She even went out and bought him boost so that, because he wasn't able to eat and that by, we could watch just him taking boost started to give him strength. She could listen and help him with his fears. And I watched Kathy reflect the light of Jesus to this pastor and music director and friend. And I watched him grow in confidence and hope. For me, it was just a wonderful example of being a light to the world. If you could have been there, you would have been inspired as watching this wonderful example of what it means to be one who Jesus calls a light to the world. Now, there are some of you in this room that are lights to the world. Others of you in this room 
are close but not there yet. And you need to become lights to the world. Lights in your home and lights in this church and lights in our world. Friends, Jesus says in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. That means we're to reflect Jesus' light to other people. Today as you leave this place, remember that there's a world out there living in darkness. And you've been called to the light, to light this world, to reflect the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. Reflect the hope that you have in Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do something as we close right here. And we're going to pray. And what I want you to pray silently, as I pray out loud, is to ask the Lord to bring one person into your life this week that you can be a light to. I don't know what that means, but it's something we need to pray about. Lord, bow your heads and your hearts. Lord, we need to be lights into your world. Would you bring into our lives one person this week? It's all we can handle right now. One person that we can be a light to. That you have prepared us to be that light. And that we can share your love and your light and your grace to just one person this week. Holy Spirit, lead us and direct us to the right person, the one that you have picked. And may we have the confidence to know that you've prepared us already to share your light into their life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.